So Genesis chapter 17, verse 1 says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said to him, I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. So it's been 13 years since Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16, 16 says, Abram was 86 years old when uh, Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Now we read Abram's 99 years old. God has waited until Abram and Sarai were as good as dead, speaking of their physical frames. He waited till they were as good as dead to bring about the promises that he's made to Abram. Uh, Abram's past the age of, you know, reproduction. He's at, past the age of virility. Sarai is also past the age of childbearing. And God has waited so that when he fulfills the promise to Abraham that he's made, that he would be able to fulfill it miraculously. All of the ages hang on the birth of Isaac. He promised um, a son to Abraham and Isaac is the fulfillment of the promise. And all of, all of the ages hang on the birth of, of Isaac. We're able to gather together because, in fact, because we're able to gather together and study God's word. That's all came about because of the birth of Isaac, because it was through Isaac that the Messiah was to be brought into the world and to give himself as a sacrifice to God, an, an acceptable sacrifice to God, that we might um, be forgiven of our sins when we place our faith in him. You know, to me, it's so important to notice that the last thing we read about Abraham is that he makes this colossal mistake. He didn't wait on the Lord to give him a son. When Sarai came to him and said, God hasn't given us kids. So here's an idea. Why don't you go into Hagar and let her have kids for us? Yeah, that's what we'll do. And Abram agrees. But what he should have done was he should have taken a stand on the word of God, should have stood on the promises that God has given him, trusted in God to bring about those promises. He should have put his foot down and told Sarai, no, God has promised us a son. And even though we don't see him working, maybe overtly, maybe we don't see him at all. You know what? We're going to trust him and give him time to work. That's what he should have done. But you know, Abram failed, right? He went into Hagar. He produced a son in his own efforts, trying to help God to fulfill his promises. And frankly, it's been a mess for the Jewish people ever since. And then, and then on top of it, when the tensions began to grow in the family, when the tensions between um, Sarai and Hagar began to grow, Abram, he fails to step in and take the leadership role. He's the spiritual leader of the household and he fails to put a stop to the problems that are going on in his house. Abram's failed in so many ways, just like we fail. But Abram's also growing at the same time, just like we're growing. He's becoming a man of faith. And you don't make a man of faith, you know, overnight. It actually takes years of God working in us to make us into those people of faith he wants us to be. Years of trusting and years of God 
working in our lives, years of us waiting on the Lord, years of walking with the Lord through just normal, ordinary circumstances of life. And I'm convinced that's what God is doing in Abram's life in the same way he's doing it in our life. Every day isn't this, you know, amazing, personal, you know, glorious revelation of God right there in front of us, you know, something tangible to us, right? But it's a continual, gentle, ongoing reminders that he's here, that he's here for us, that he's with us as we walk through our years. The 13 years that has passed, you know, I think it's a touching and tender reminder that God isn't done with Abram. God's demonstrating his amazing patience uh, and long-suffering in dealing with Abram, uh, patiently waiting to bring Abram to that place where he can actually exercise great faith. And it blesses me because God is so very patient. If you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13, I mean, you know the passage if you can't get there quickly. I'm going to read from the uh, New International Version. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8 says, Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It, does, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always preserves. Love never fails. I mean, you know what? That's a description of our God. That's the description of how he deals with us as his children. He's not casting us off when we make a mistake. He is working in our hearts. He's working in our lives to make us into, to shape us, to grow us into that image of his son. And I never tire of hearing that, that that's God's work. That's God's heart towards us. And God says to Abraham, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. Now, God reveals to Abraham, he reveals himself to Abraham as El Shaddai here. Now, there's a little bit of debate, actually, what El Shaddai means. You know, and I find it a little bit interesting and insightful to read the different commentators what they think it means, right? One commentator by the name of Adam Clark, he says, El Shaddai means, I am God all-sufficient. From Shada, the Hebrew word Shada, to shed or to pour out. And he translates this as, I am the God who pours out blessing, who gives them richly, abundantly, and continually. Another commentator by the name of Donald Gray Barnhouse, he says, the Hebrew word, the Hebrew word shad means chest or breast. It may have in mind the strength of a man's chest, God Almighty, or the strength and nourishment of a woman's breast, God of tender care. The old um, German linguist and commentator, Leopold, he says, Shaddai comes from the root Shaddad, which means to display power. Now, all of these descriptions are true regarding God. He's all sufficient for you. He pours out his blessing upon you. He gives richly and abundantly to each one of us. 
He gives continually. He never stops giving. And he's a God who tenderly cares for you. And there's none like him. Nothing's too hard for him. Nothing's impossible for him. His power is limitless. This is who our God is. This is the God that we serve. And he says to Abram, he says, Abram, I am El Shaddai, the abundant one, the all-powerful God. Walk before me and be blameless. Now, the word here, blameless, it literally means whole, right? To be whole. It can mean to be upright, to be um, undefiled. And God says, Abram, walk before me and be mindful of me. You know, and I think that there's a little bit of rebuke here. Abram, walk before me and leave your schemes behind. Be mindful of me. Walk in an upright manner before me. Now, again, it's been 13 years and every day Hagar's in the house. Every day Abram sees, sees little Ishmael running around. He's 13 years old now. It's a reminder of his failures. And we read last week that God didn't recognize Hagar as Abram's wife. And we're going to see in the chapters to come that God isn't going to recognize um, Ishmael as Abram's son. But every day there was a reminder to Abram that he was trying to work things out in his flesh. And when God says, walk before me and be blameless, God is laying a challenge before Abram. Abram didn't have the Holy Spirit living in him the way we have him. Abram didn't have the New Testament to read and to refer to, to open up and to be directed in God's um, will the way we do. But God is laying this challenge, to, to, uh, laying it before Abram, challenging him, saying, Abram, I'm El Shaddai. Walk before me, Abram. Be mindful of me, Abram. Be aware of who I am. Don't walk independent of me, Abram. Don't walk in a way uh, the way you used to, trying to make things happen. But be, up, be an upright man before me, Abram. Be undefiled. I want your heart. I want your total commitment, Abram. And it's what God wants from each one of us too. You know, I love it. That's, that's what we need. We need to be mindful of the Lord. Everything we say, we say before Him. Everything we watch on TV, we watch in His presence. Everything we, we see or go to on the computer, He sees it. He's there. He's right there with us. Every thought we think, uh, you know, it's all known to Him. And God would have us be mindful of Him and walk in a way that uh, before Him uh, uh, in integrity and in an uprightness, you know, undefiled, unspotted by the world, aware of His presence. We're to live our lives cognizant of His presence. And verse 2 continues, And I will make my covenant between me and you, and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, now, listen, I think this is, this is amazing, to tell you the truth. You know what? There's no record, no record at all in all of antiquity that any deity ever made a covenant with his, his people. In fact, all the false gods 
You know, the people that are worshiping false gods, they're actually trying to pacify that false god's anger. They're trying to earn his favor, earn his blessing by bringing something to him. It's only our God that makes promises with his people. It's only our God that initiates covenants between him and his people. And you know what? We could never pacify God's righteous indignation. We could never pacify the wrath that our sins deserve. It's only our God who supplied a suitable sacrifice that would pacify his wrath. Ours, the wrath our sins deserve is only pacified in the sacrifice that he's provided. Boy, you know what? How loving is our God? He, his love is so undeserved and it's so overwhelmingly amazing towards us. And it says, God appears to Abraham. And notice it says, God talked to him. You know, our God is a talking God. He wants to speak to you. The question is, are you listening? We saw a few weeks ago, God had taken Abraham, uh, Abram to this quiet place where Abram could hear from the Lord. He got him away. God got Abram away from the chaos and the ruckus going on in his household where he was able to hear from the Lord. And again, I want to, I want to challenge you. Are you taking steps to get away with the Lord, to get someplace quiet where you can hear his voice? You know, one of my favorite Psalms is Psalm 115. It's repeated, uh, Psalm 135. And the psalmist, what he does is he contrasts our God with idols. He says, their idols are silver, silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. And the idea is, but our God speaks. That's the contrast that he's making. And that's what he continues to make uh, that type of a contrast throughout the psalm, right? He says, eyes they have, but they don't, do not see. Our God sees. Ears they have, but they do not hear. Our God hears. Noses they have, but they do not smell. Well, our God smells and enjoys the sweet-smelling aroma of sacrifice. He says, they have hands, but they do not handle. Our God holds us in his hands. He leads us by the hand. Feet they have, but they do not walk. And it's God's desire that we would walk with him through the day. Walk with him in the cool of the day. And it goes on and says, nor do they mutter through their uh, throats. Again, those idols, they don't speak. Our God speaks. And here, the psalmist is going to reveal to us the spiritual law. He goes on to say, those who make them are like them, so is everyone who trusts in them. You know, what you worship is what you're going to become like. If you worship dumb idols, well, that's what you're going to become. You're going to become dumb. You're going to be, it's stupid to worship a dumb idol. But if you're worshiping the one true and living God, man, you're going to experience true life. Romans 8, 29 confirms, tells us that God is at work conforming us, conforming those who trust in Jesus Christ to place their faith in him. God is at work conforming us into his image. As God talks to Abraham here too, what do we see? It says that Abraham falls on his face. And we're going to hear, I will, 24 times in this chapter. The chapter is basically a monologue of God up until verse 16. 
God is talking and Abraham's just laying there on his face listening. And imagine again being 99 years old when God Almighty, the God who's all-powerful, the creator of the universe, right? Just imagine he appears before you. I'm surprised that 99, uh, Abram didn't have a heart attack. And I'm surprised that he survived the encounter. And I got to tell you too, before we go on, it always makes me laugh. It always makes me laugh when I hear people say, you know what? Uh, yeah, me and the man upstairs. Or it makes me laugh when they say, you know, God's my buddy. You know what? Because it, it makes me laugh because this chapter reminds us when you're in the presence of God, man, you experience that, you're going to fall down on your face. You're no longer his buddy, man. You're just hanging on for survival. It's worth noting also as you read through the Bible, people's position when they encounter God. Sometimes they're kneeling before God. Sometimes you see people, they're bowing down before God. And in the book of Revelation, we often see people when they're worshiping, they're on their face before God, worshiping the Lord. They just fall down. The, the point is this, I think, there's a place for all of that in our worship with the Lord. There are times that you might feel like you need to get down on your knees uh, before the Lord. And you might feel that there's times where you just need to be on your face, just, just laid out face down on the ground before the Lord. You may, uh, you know, just feel that overwhelming need, need to do it. And boy, I just want to encourage you. You know what? Uh, there's a place for that. There's a place to be on your knees. There's a place for being on your face. I encourage you, if the Lord is putting that on your heart, man, just to adopt that position of humility and surrender before the Lord. Um, you're never to draw attention to yourself. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that on a Sunday you feel like God is calling you to come up front and dance before the congregation. I mean, that's probably not called for, you know. But there's a time... There's a place during your devotional time. There's, there's a time and maybe a need at times to just get down and again, adopt that position of humility and surrender to the Lord. You know, it, it should go without saying the most important thing is not our bodily position, but the position of our heart when we're uh, worshiping the Lord as we're pouring our heart out to Him. And so... We see Abram, he's on his face and God's speaking to him. And he says, verse 4, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall you be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. Now, God is changing Abram's name here to Abraham. And I think it's worth noting that, that what God does is he adds the fifth letter of the alphabet. He adds a hey, five being the number of grace. He adds this letter to Abram's name and to also Sarai's name. So Abram becomes Abraham and Sarai becomes Sarah. And again, it must have been hard for Abraham. I mean, he goes to the grocery store. You know, the lady's there checking out uh, his groceries. And Abram has to say to her, hey, don't call me Abram. Don't call me exalted father anymore. You need to start calling me Abraham, okay? Father of many nations. The lady probably looks at him and says, oh, really? That's great. How many kids you got? Well, 
I got, I got just one. You know, it must have been hard for him. I know, like when I moved to Oregon, people in Oregon, they don't like people from ca- coming up from California, you know. And uh, they would say, so where are you from? And I'd always have to say, <coughs> California, you know, something like that. It was a little bit embarrassing, right? And I think that that's probably something what Abraham was experiencing. You know, he was probably like most people. He didn't really, you know, enjoy his name, exalted father. And I can hear Abram saying, no, please, Lord, please, not father of many nations. Why can't we just go with something like Bob? You know, let's, let's just do something simple. It's also worth noting that as you read through your Bible, what you see is God has a habit of changing people's names. God changed, changed Jacob's name, which means, you know, kind of loosely translated, but almost literal too. Dirty, rotten, scheming trickster. That's what Jacob's name means. But he changes it to Israel, which means governed by God. You know, Jesus changed Simon's name, remember? Simon means shifting sand. It means unstable, right? But he changes Peter's, he changes Simon's name to Peter, which means rocky or a little stone. And I think it's cool in regards to name change. What you see is God calls Jacob, Jacob sometimes. Sometimes he calls him Israel, you know? Sometimes he calls him Dirty, rotten, scheming, trickster, conniver, thief. But sometimes he refers to him as Israel, governed by God. For a long time after Jesus changes uh, Simon's name to Peter, he calls him Simon Peter for a long time. And it blesses me because God saw who these men were. God sees who we are. But he also saw those men. He also sees us, you know, um, what we're going to be, what we are in Christ Jesus. But for a period of time, you know, we're under uh, construction. We're in transition. In the Bible, names are synonymous with a person's character. God gives us many names. He gives you and me many names in faith. He calls us saints. He calls us righteous He calls us chosen. He calls us sons of God. He sees us as we are, but he knows us as what we are in Christ Jesus. We may not be there yet, but like I said, we're under construction. We're in transition. He knows that which he's going to accomplish in us. He knows that he will accomplish the meaning of that name in us. Even if it seems impossible or just completely, you know, preposterous to each one of us, you know, um, God's promises, he promises a wonderful new name to each of us one day when we're in heaven too. He promises us a new name to every one of us that overcomes in Christ Jesus. And I can tell you what, personally, I can't wait. It's going to be awesome. Boy, I I just say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Anyway, in verse 4, God says, you shall be the father of many nations. But by the time he gets to verse 5, it's a done deal. God says, I have made you, past tense, the father of many nations. God is at work in each one of us. He sees the finished product. He sees 
us seated with Christ in the heavenlies. He sees us perfected and justified and sanctified. It's all past tense, yet it's in our future. How amazing, how gracious and wonderful is our God. Verse 6 says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings shall come from you and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger. All the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, I will be their God. So here's a question for you. Do you think God is done with the Jewish people? Uh, there's a system of theology found in the church uh, that says that the church has replaced the Jewish nation. The promises that were uh, originally given to the Jews because they failed to recognize their Messiah when Christ came, the, the idea is that, well, God's done with the Jewish people and now the church has inherited those promises. The, the idea is it's called replacement theology. Boy, I want to encourage you, never buy into that kind of nonsense. God's not done with the Jewish people. God has a plan for the nation of Israel. God calls this covenant that he makes here with Abraham an everlasting covenant, verse 7. Verse 8, he gives Abraham and his descendants uh, after him the whole land of Canaan, and he calls it an everlasting possession. It's an everlasting possession given by an everlasting covenant. Paul says in Romans 11, verses 1 and 2, he says, I say then, has God cast off his people? Certainly not. I like the way it says it in the King James Version. The King James Version is very strong. God forbid. Has God cast off his people? God forbid. For I also, Paul says, am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. And God goes on to argue that God... Certainly is not done with Israel. There is a blinding in part that has occurred, but when the fullness of the Gentiles come in, when the last Gentile is saved, then God will begin to deal with the nation of Israel again. And it says in Romans eleven twenty six that all of Israel will be saved. God has a plan for Israel. He has a plan for His people, the Jewish people, and that plan is unchanging. And they have a claim to the land that's unchanging and everlasting. God says, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. So when it comes to the land of Israel, who do you think, you know, the land belongs to? Well, it's not the U.S.'s land to give away. We've talked about this before. It's not the EU's land to give away. It's not the UN's land to give away. You know, the land doesn't belong to the Arab people. The land doesn't belong to the Palestinian people. It's God's land, and he's given it to the Jewish people. And God says, it's always going to be yours. It's always going to be yours. It's an everlasting possession. And you know what? As believers in Christ Jesus, there's no room in our thoughts or in our hearts 
for anti-Semitism, right? There should be no discussion whatsoever in regards to whether or not Israel has claim to that land or whether or not Israel has a right to defend herself. You don't have to agree with the policies of the, the current ruling party, the current administration, but we should always take a stand with the Lord when it comes to supporting the Israel people and their rights to the land and their rights to defend themselves. Verse 9 says, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your, your generations. He who is born in your house and bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in his flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So God says that you're to cut off the foreskin. And if somebody does not cut off their foreskin, if circumcision does not happen, if the foreskin is not cut off, it doesn't matter, Abraham. It doesn't matter if it's you that it's not cut off. You know what? It doesn't matter if it's your son. It doesn't matter if you're a servant. Um, you've broken my commandment. You're to be cut off from uh, your people. You may know this or not. I don't know. But vitamin K, which is a clotting factor, you know, between the fifth and the seventh day, it gets, you know, to its normal levels. At the eighth day, it's actually at its highest level. Prior to the eighth day, if you were to circumcise a baby, there's a chance that he could uh, bleed to death. But there's also another very important clotting factor in our blood. It's called prothrombin. Prothrombin. You know, I'm a doctor. I can't even say it. Prothrombin, right? It's also very important. The third day, it gets to be about the 30% level of normal. And then on the eighth day, it's at 110% of its normal levels. And then on the ninth day, it, it settles back down to its normal level at 100%. You know, so the absolute best day to circumcise a child is on the eighth day. Boy, what a coincidence, huh? I mean, you know what? It's so funny when people tell me that it's not a coincidence, it's God. You know, I, I think it's funny that Jewish people will say, when God wants to be anonymous, you know, that's when he works things by coincidences, right? Verse 15, then God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give her a son, I'll give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Abram goes back to his camp and says, hey, don't call me Abram anymore, okay? From now on, it's going to be Abraham. And uh, oh, by the way, God's changed your name too. It's Sarah. Sarah means princess. And it kind of has that connotation of princess or king, queen maybe. You know, it carries with it the idea of royalty. 
which is actually fitting for her since kings are going to be coming from her. Verse 17, Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? I mean, God has been doing all the talking up to this point. And uh, when God first appeared to Abram, Abram falls on his face. And it seems like, you know, Abram just musters up just enough strength by this time to maybe raise up a little bit, maybe to stand upright. I don't know. But all of a sudden, Abram's back down on his face. He's down again. And I wonder how much more of this can his heart take? I think it's worth noting here, Abram's laughing in his heart, it says. And God sees it. 1 Kings 8.39, speaking of God, says, You alone know the hearts of all men. If you think that you're hiding something from God, you know what? Don't fool yourself. You're not hiding it from him. You know, he sees, he knows, he hears. He, his eyes are everywhere and on everyone. And you know, he's not looking again to crush us or to, you know, break us down when we fail. You know, he's, he can't take his eyes off of us because he loves us so much. And what we see here is Abram, he's laughing in his heart. But it's not out of disbelief. The laughter in his heart is out of just sheer joy, right? He's overwhelmed at this point by the grace of God. He's past the age of child production. Again, he's 99 years old. Right now, Sarai, Sarah is 89 years old. She's going to have a baby at 90. She's also past the age of childbearing. And Abram's just floored. I mean, he's overwhelmed by the goodness and by the grace of God in his life and he laughs in his heart for joy the new testament gives us a little bit more insight a little bit more commentary on what's going on here romans 4 17 through 21 if you want to turn there you can read along with me romans 4 17 through verse 21 and it says yet in the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, he did not waver at the promises of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able to perform. Boy, man, that's, God help us to be, you know, not to waver at God's promises towards us, not to be weak in faith, but to be strengthened in faith. You know, the next chapter, we're going to see Sarai, Sarah, sorry, Sarah princess. We're going to see Sarah. I mean, she's going to start laughing too, but she's laughing in disbelief and God corrects her for it. Verse 18. And Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Abram is praying and pleading with the Lord that Ishmael would be, uh, 
live before God. And the idea is that he wants God to establish his covenant with Ishmael because he so deeply loves Ishmael. It shows us how much he loves Ishmael here as he's pleading for him. And this is an important point to remember as we go further in the book of Genesis, just how much Abram loved Ishmael. Verse 19, then God said, no, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. Now, Isaac's name means laughter. You probably know that. It's like God said, since this seems to be so funny to you guys, you're going to be calling his name laughter. And God continues and says, I will establish my covenant with him, that is Isaac, for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I've heard you. Behold, I've blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget 12 princes, uh, princes, and I will make him a great nation. God hears Abraham's prayer and he answers it. God did just what he said he was going to do. He blessed Ishmael. Ishmael is the father of the Arab nation. And right now there are 18 nations, I believe it is, right now that are just blessed descendants of Ishmael. Ishmael is the father of the Arab people and they are blessed beyond measure financially speaking because of oil production. You know, in all the Middle East, there's oil every place except in Israel. Isn't that wild? Verse 21, But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. Not only does Abram go home and say, you know, hey, our names are changed, sweetie. But, um, oh yeah, I almost forgot. You're going to be pregnant and next year at age 90, you're going to go through childbirth. Boy, how blessed are we? I mean, that baby, it's gonna, that baby's going to be born and we're going to call his name laughter, sweetheart. You know, and I imagine uh, Sarah just said, hey, that's not funny, Abraham. Quit joking around. Don't be messing with me. Well, verse 22, then he finished uh, talking with him and God went up from Abraham. What do you think that looked like? God went up from Abraham. I mean, the conversation is over and El Shaddai, God Almighty, Jehovah, goes up from Abraham. Boy, what did that look like? So Abram took Ishmael, his son, all who were born in his house and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of, a of Abram's house and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin that very same day as God had said to him. Abram was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very same day, Abram was circumcised and his son Ishmael. And all the men of his house, born in his house or bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. You know, I want you to see something just really vital here. We need to take a look at Abram's obedience. Verse 23 says that Abram took his son and all of his ser servants, all that were born in his house, all that were bought with money, you know, every, every male that was in his house, and he circumcised them that very same day, it says. And then verse 26 says, that very same day, Abram and his son was circumcised. Abram's belief in the covenant was displayed and proven 
by his obedience to the command. What we really believe, it actually manifests in our actions. Abram's obedience is a great example to us here. He didn't wait. He just acted on God's word. He's 99 years old. Think about it. No lidocaine, no painkiller, nothing. Think about the cost of obedience that God is calling Abraham to here. And we see tremendous personal obedience. And you know what? The question we need to ask each one of ourselves is, what is God calling us to cut off? What is God calling you to cut off? What part of your flesh does he ask you to trim away? R-rated movies? Is it turn off the TV because what's, what you're watching isn't uh, pleasing to the Lord? You know, is there, they show nudity nowadays on the TV. I mean, if God gave you a knife, and I'm speaking to you men, of course, if God gave you a knife and a remote, which one would you choose to cut off? I mean, yeah. Abraham was a man in his house. He didn't ask anyone to do anything that he himself wasn't willing to do. And he, he demonstrated tremendous personal obedience. But that's not where it stopped. We also see tremendous parental obedience. What does it cost you to tell your 13-year-old, hey, we're cutting that out of your life. From here on, it's over. That's gone right? I'm sure there was some conversation, but Abraham, he was an example. He wasn't going to ask his son to do something that he personally wouldn't do himself. You know, I have a friend, he was a a youth pastor for many, many years, and he would always say, the kid that's the hardest kid to win, the kid that's the hardest kid to reach is that kid who has parents that claim they're Christians, but they're not living their faith. Those parents whose words are so completely different than their actions creates a hardness in kids' hearts. And they ask their kids to do things that they're not willing to do. You know what? If you're using foul language, if you're watching things that you shouldn't be watching because of nudity, because of profanity, whatever the case may be, and then you're trying to tell your kids not to do that, you know what? You're better off not saying anything. Seriously, you're better off not saying anything because it causes confusion in your kids. You know, it causes a hardness in the heart that makes it so very difficult for somebody else to come along and share the gospel with them and and see them get saved. You know, maybe Abraham is an example. You know what? Maybe what he did was he told his servants, you grab his arms and you grab his feet. Here we go. And I think regardless of what Ishmael said, Abraham was going to stand firm and be obedient to the Lord. And that may mean you you have to say, hey, you're not going to watch that anymore. It's not pleasing to the Lord. Hey, you know what? You're not going to hang out with those people anymore. That's not pleasing to the Lord. Hey, you're not going to hang those posters up in your room. It's not edifying. It's not pleasing to the Lord. You're not going to listen to that music. You know, I don't care what everybody else is doing. You're not going to do that. We're Christians. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Abraham demonstrated tremendous parental obedience. Parents, we need to take a stand. But it's 
still goes further than that in Abraham's example of obedience. He had his servants circumcised. They, that would have never happened had Abraham not garnered their respect. He lived his life in such a way that it was glorifying to the Lord and it was a blessing to other people. He wasn't perfect by any means. He made mistakes and we've looked at those mistakes, right? But he had an influence on those people around him. When, when you got around Abraham, you heard the truth. You saw the love. And he wasn't afraid in his, in his own house to set a standard, to set a standard that influenced the people around him. And you know what? He demonstrates tremendous patriarchal obedience here. We need to be willing. We need to be willing to be salt and light to our families and to those relatives that are around us. And then finally, what we see in Abram's example of obedience is positional obedience, right? He was a guy that had everyone around him. Not only his son, not only his servants, but people that were around him, just every stranger that was around him, they got circumcised too. And it's a picture, again, of your influence extending, the influence you have extending to the people that you're hanging out with, the people that you're working with. What kind of influence do you have with the people you're hanging around all day, the people that you come in contact with at the bank, at the grocery store, at the post office, you know, across the street, you talk to your neighbor. What kind of influence do you have on the people you see every day? Can you speak openly to them? Can you challenge them? Are you speaking openly to them? Are you challenging them? Abraham, he must have been held in extremely high esteem amongst those people around him. I mean, just think about it. If Abraham came home and said, hey, God changed our names, and guess what else he said? Everybody's getting circumcised today. You know, I can bet you that those strangers are, that are around him just like, yeah, not today, Abraham. That's not going to happen. Not in this lifetime. I'm out of here. But the witness that he had in his life, it carried a tremendous weight. The man that Abraham was. He lived in such a way that when other people watched him, when other people observed him, when other people were looking at him, they came to the conclusion that he was somebody who had a relationship with God. And whatever the cost, to them, they wanted what he had. He was someone worth listening to. And again, just think about the things that God asks, asks us to walk away from. Just think about the things that ask God or that God asks uh, for us to cut out of our lives. How do we handle that? You know, what's our response look like when God asks us to cut things out of our life? You know, Abram, he didn't need to pray about it. He didn't need to warm up to the idea. You know, Abram was obedient. God said it, he did it. And it's an amazing example to us of obedience. It's exactly how we should respond to God's commands in our life. Now, the New Testament picks up on circumcision. And you can read Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. You can read Colossians 2, verses 9 through 12. You can read Philippians 3, verses 1 and 2 to get more insight 
about what circumcision is. You know, it's a sign of a covenant. But Romans 4 tells us that it's not the circumcision that saved Abram, right? It was his belief in God. And we read that a couple of weeks ago, Genesis 15, verse 6, where it says, and he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. This was before Abraham was circumcised. And that's what uh, Romans talks about. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant uh, God made with him. Circumcision is a cutting away of the flesh. The cutting away of the flesh is what God desires for his people. God desires that our fleshly life would be cut away, that it would be dealt with. God desires that we would live lives that are sensitive to him. In the Old Testament, we often read about the prophets, their condemnation, their rebuke of the people. They would say that they were uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in ears. Physically, they were circumcised, but their hearts were fleshly and their ears became fleshly also. Circumcision was just a sign. It was an outward sign of the covenant God had made with his people. And the New Testament equivalent to circumcision would be baptism. Baptism is an outward sign of what's occurred inwardly in my heart. It's an outward sign of the New Testament. Baptism doesn't save you. It's when you place your faith in Christ. That righteousness is imputed to you. It's your faith in Christ. It's your, when you place your faith in him, that's what saves you. When, you know, his righteousness is deposited into your account and in the eyes of God, you're seen as righteous. Baptism, again, is just this outward demonstration of what's occurred inwardly in my heart. When you go into the waters of baptism, you go under the water and you come back up, um, you're publicly declaring that you're aligning yourself with the death burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When you go into the waters of baptism and you go under the water, you're declaring that your life has been crucified. The old man is dead in the waters. He's buried in the waters of baptism. And when you come up from the waters of baptism, it's symbol, it symbolizes the resurrection, that you're dead to sin, but now you're alive to God. Christ is now living in you. And it's an open public declaration of, again, what's occurred in your heart. It's a symbol. It doesn't save us. Christ alone saves. It's a symbol of, of the faith that I've placed in Christ when I've placed my faith in Christ, that I'm united in him in his death, burial, and resurrection. And again, as I place my faith in Christ, I die to the world I'm made alive to God. And again, a new creation in Jesus Christ. It's Christ now living in me. We're not baptized to be saved. We get baptized to be obedient. Jesus gave instructions to go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them after they believe, baptizing them in the name of Jesus. God had given Abram, these great promises. He says, Abram, I'm going to bless you. You know, over and over again, God had told him, I'm going to bless you. 
I'm going to make a great nation out of you. The, the world is going to be blessed through your descendants. God gave Abram the promise of a son, but Abram got tired of waiting. He got tired of waiting for the promise of God to be fulfilled in his life. So we saw how Abram tried to help God out. And, the, and in the efforts of his flesh, he creates Ishmael. Ishmael is a work of the flesh. Ishmael wasn't recognized by God. And eventually he became such a problem. He, he was a cause of so many problems. It was because Abram tried to help God in his flesh right? The, to fulfill the promises that were made to him. It, it became a source of pain, you know, a source of tears, a source of separation. And Ishmael is a reminder of each, to each one of us how far reaching our sins can be because Ishmael's causing problems for the Jewish people even to this day. You know, the promises that God made to you, they're going to come to pass. His word is sure. His promises are sure. Let's not get ahead of God. You know, I believe very strongly that God has shown me that he's going to do a work in this church. He's going to bless this church. And it's going to be an amazing work. It's going to be a work that none of us have ever seen before. And, you know, we're kind of in new territory here too, you know. Uh, things are awkward right now because of the situation, COVID. You know, we're in an unusual stage as a church. You know, we can't meet together in a building. But if we were able to meet together in our current facility here at The Rock, you know what? It's becoming too small for us as more and more people are coming out on a Sunday morning. I mean, God is blessing. And there are changes that are occurring before our very eyes here in the church. The Lord's casting new vision. You know, he's, he's bringing about new things within the church. I tell you, I don't want to get out in front of the Lord. You know, the Lord uh, is doing a work in this church. I don't want to help him in the efforts of my own strength and the efforts of my flesh to help him fulfill those promises. I don't want to create any Ishmael's. I want to be willing and i am so willing to just wait on the lord to let him build this church into what's pleasing to him pray for us as leaders you know i encourage you come out to underground prayer and pray for wisdom and direction for us as as church leadership pray for god's timing and god's direction and as a pastor of this church i'm going to tell you this chapter here genesis 17 it's such a reminder to me how much I need to wait on the Lord. You know, I want Isaac. I want laughter. I don't want Ishmael's. I don't want anger and strife and division. I don't want to do anything <clears throat> that's in the flesh. I don't want the pain that comes from it. I don't want the division. I don't want the warfare. I don't want the separation. I don't want the tears. You know, it's God's heart. And I'll tell you, it's my heart too that we would seek God in prayer together for God's plan and his timing for this church. And maybe that's something that God's speaking to you. He is El Shaddai. He's the God that desires to care for you. He's the abundant God that wants to bless you. And whatever it is that God has promised to you, wait on him. Don't grow weary in waiting 
on the Lord to fulfill his promises in your life. He's faithful. He will accomplish all that he's promised you if you'll just trust him and not get out ahead of him. Now, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ today, if you're trusting in some infant baptism you had, you can't even remember it, but you got a certificate in your hand. If you're trusting in some ritual to make you right in God's eyes, you know what? It's a waste of time. You know what? Those things don't save. We're not saved by rituals. We're not saved because we're born into a family. You know, just because my grandpa and my grandma were a Christian doesn't mean I'm going to heaven. You know what? We can only be saved by coming to Christ in faith, by confessing our sins and placing our faith in his finished work there at the cross, placing our faith in the fact that he took our sins from us and gave us his righteousness. He bore the wrath. He bore the fiery indignation that our sins deserved. He paid that penalty in our place, in our stead. And it's not until I accept that and I turn from my sins, turn from past lifestyle, turn away from the world, forsake those things, and turn towards God and live for Him. It's not until we do this that we can be saved. And you know, again, it's no magic formula. It's, it's no special prayer you got to read or say. You know, it's just in your heart. You say, Lord, forgive me. I'm a sinner. I've done wrong. Lord, forgive me and cleanse me of that stain that sin has brought into my life. And God, forgive me and give me the power to live for you. Come into my life. Fill me with your spirit. Give me the power to live for you. Lord, I give you my life. Be the Lord. Be the master of my life. I want to live for you here on out. And if you'll do that, God will meet you. God will meet you and change you. He'll make you a new creation. Wipe the slate clean and work in your life in ways you never thought possible. Never imagined. 41 years ago, I gave my life to Christ. I've never regretted it. I can tell you honestly, I've never regretted it. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the examples of faith here in your word, Lord. God, help us not to get out in front of you. Teach us how to wait on you, Lord. Teach us how to, to seek your face. Teach us how to get away where we can hear from you. Father God, would you move in our hearts tonight? Lord, would you let your word sink deep into our hearts and just take root? Lord, accomplish in our hearts all that you have for us tonight all that this uh, word has, everything that you've purposed this word to deliver to us today, God, would you work it in us? Speak to us, Lord. Speak to us, Lord. Father, for anyone that may be wrestling with a decision to give their life to you, Lord, I pray you give them the strength right now to surrender, to just give in, just to let you take control of their life, Lord, as they pray for forgiveness. Lord, let them know that you've heard that prayer and you've meant them, you've forgiven them, you've received them, you accept them, and you adopt them as a child of God. Lord, give them that confidence, Lord. We love you, Lord Jesus. Bless the church. Build it into everything you want Calvary Chapel, Truckee, Calvary on the Rock to be. Lord, make it everything you want. it. Make it a work of your spirit, not a work of man in any way, Lord. Be glorified in us. Be glorified through us. Lord, use us to reach this community for your name.
Use us to reach this world, Lord. We ask it all in your name, Jesus. Amen.